Let's stand now for the reading of God's word. We're going to turn to Malachi chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 7. We'll be focused on 5, 5 through 7. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings and righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days of your fathers, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as we've learned, as we've worked through Malachi's prophecy, the cynicism and the rebellion of the people of Israel is obvious. They have begun questioning whether God is good. They've begun questioning whether God has, is just, whether he cares for them. They've formulated their own opinions about that, independent of the word of God, and have begun to, see, to, have begun to use that opinion as a club with which to attack God himself. The sin of the people of Israel is shameful, but they feel no shame. They feel no shame. They keep coming back with those cynical questions toward God. So rather than God's fatherly presence coming in the form of protection and blessing, he must now exercise discipline. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, verse 5 says. What a statement, right? When, when you hear God say, I'm drawing near to you for judgment. Um, do we have any fear when we hear such a statement? Are we, are we as Christians to fear God, to have any fear of God, or is this... Is this something that we should uh, explain away because we're in an age of grace and not of law, right? Um, does, is it as John says, um, does perfect love cast out fear and so it's a sin for Christians to fear God? Does the fact that we are forgiven of all of our sins by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone require us to stop fearing God and trembling at his judgment? Well, no, of course not. 
How many times do we have to be exhorted from Scripture that the fear of the Lord is wisdom, right, is good? In fact, as Psalm 130 verse 4 teaches us, it is God's forgiveness that actually establishes the fear of God. Because we are forgiven, because God has the power to forgive, because it, it only is his power to forgive, therefore we should fear him. Right there in Psalm 130 verse 4 says, There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Right, because he forgives, because he is the only one who can forgive, then we should relate to him with fear and trembling. And the Apostle Paul in his second letter to the church in Corinth writes, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So when we read these prophecies of God coming to Israel, um, sending his son in judgment, they should cause us at, at the very least to be circumspect, right? To stop and consider our actions, consider our thoughts, consider our holiness. They should cause us to um, they should cause us to examine ourselves, and after having examined ourselves, they should cause us to repent of particular sins and look again to Jesus Christ, right, the Savior of sinners, for forgiveness. That'll be a constant, constant meal plan for Christians, right? The life of Christians is one of repentance, not merely one of praying a prayer and coasting the rest of the way in the pink fluff of God's kindness, right? That we add to our faith moral excellence and to our moral excellence knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness we add love and if those qualities are yours and are increasing and we're like, Peter, come on, that's too much. You mean I have to make progress in the faith? You mean God is God is gonna is gonna push me along and sanctify me, and I have to do something? And if those qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his what purification from his former sins. The one who doesn't make progress in the faith doesn't fear God, doesn't remember the forgiveness that God gave to him. And so you see how forgiveness establishes the fear of God, again, in this passage. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. So when we read of God's anger, and this is, God is angry at Israel, and Malachi is expressing these thoughts of God to the people. So when we read of God's anger at sin in any place in the scripture, it should cause Christians, those who know God's forgiveness, 
through Christ, to self-examine. That's what it should do. Right? What remaining corruption is in us that we are called to put to death by the power of the Spirit? Or are we like King David in the face of Joab that we looked at last Sunday evening? I'm weak today. I'm weak today. You know, I'm not going to... Today is a day where I am not going to make progress. We'll make progress tomorrow. I'm weak today. And so we lecture ourselves again about the amazing grace of God and never get to work fighting Sin, buffeting our bodies to make them our slaves, taking thoughts captive in obedience to Christ, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, keeping Christ's commands because we love him, right? And and are thankful for his atoning work that he did for us on our behalf when we were yet sinners, right? The people of Israel had been called to faith in God and holiness in God from the start, and by every prophet since the fall, they've been called to holiness. Now they're practicing sorcery. Look at this list in verse 5. Sorcery, adultery, perjury, oppression, and unkindness to strangers. Those sins Um, one commentator said, are such as were grievous sins in the eyes of the law and to some extent were punishable by death. They're committing the the sins that had capital capital crimes and capital, capital, capital punishment attached to them. Think about those sins. Think about what's listed here and you understand that there's nothing new under the sun. At least you should be thinking, well, there's nothing new under the sun. Those sins of Israel are the sins of our nation. Those are the sins of our culture. Um, Though we're more educated, though we're wealthier than Israel was, right? Though we're certainly more um, bodacious and technologically advanced, we are committing the same sins that were committed by Israel. Um, all the advances that we speak of have not led to any reform, brothers and sisters. Think of those sins that are listed here. Sorcery, magic, earth worship, potions, palm reading, human sacrifice even. All parts of what I think are incorporated into this human sacrifice. I mean, we dedicate our lives to virtual sorcery. Playing games. And the, and the law had taught the people of God this. In Deuteronomy 18.10 we read, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer. Right? That was forbidden. And the, the, the punishment was, was death. I think abortion. I think about abortion in this regard. Right? Abortion, our culture of death, is modern day sorcery. Notice that in that Deuteronomy 18.10 that um, making sons and daughters pass through fire is connected with those with sorcery and, and omens and witchcraft. We sacrifice our children in order to have a better future. That's precisely why Israel sacrificed their children to Moloch. It was an offering for a better future. 
We do the same thing with our children. We sacrifice them thinking that, oh, well, then we can finish our college education. Wonderful. Better future. A child was the price for a better future. A child is the price today for a better future. Our culture believes this same thing. Adultery. Adultery. There is hardly a man or a woman or a young man or a young woman who has not committed adultery, as described by our Lord. Right? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We, as Peter puts it, have eyes that are full of adultery that never cease from sin. Our media, our movie producers celebrate adultery, and and we're like, oh, they celebrate adultery, but then we consume what they make. We consume it all the time. We consume their violence. We consume their adulteries. We consume, we, we are a nation of adulterers. Those who swear falsely. Liars, perjurers, contract breakers, those who cheat on their taxes, those whose word is no good. The law of God teaches the people of God this, you shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the Lord, the name of your, your God, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. And our Savior taught us that every time we agree to something, we, our yes should be yes and our no should be no. And every time we determine against something, right, we, we can be positive or negative, right? Every time we say we're going to do something, our yes should be yes. And every time we determine we're not going to do something, our no should be no. In other words, a simple yes or no is a vow before the Lord, Every yes and every no is a vow you're taking before the Lord. And God is watching. Are you a man of your word? If you say you are going to do something or that you are not going to do something, is that what happens? Right? Do you keep your yeses and noes? Israel made a mockery of God by swearing by his name to give the appearance of fidelity and yet used their vows just to their own filthy gain. Next is those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien. Well, there's no talk of that today. Wages and immigration? Yeah. Uh, There's so much talk today about income inequality and what should be the minimum wage, and immigration, and illegal aliens, and border walls. So this is a focus in our culture right now, and there are many Christians that fall into the ditch on one side of the road, wanting to deport millions of people and practice no kind of hospitality for strangers and aliens. Right, And then there are Christians that fall into the ditch on the other side of the road, mouthing the tenets of social justice warriors and and economic Marxists, teaching that the only justice is one of absolute and enforced equality. Right, And scripture destroys both of those ideas because it teaches us to be deeply, deeply, deeply concerned for the stranger in our midst as well as the orphan and widow. 
right? You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Exodus twenty-two twenty-one, And it teaches us that private property is good. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. It's his. It's not the state's. It's private property and it's good, right? Those on the left want compassion for strangers, but death for orphans, right? Babies in the womb. Those on the right want to do wrong to strangers and orphans and widows, but speak loudly against abortion. And all of us have a a deep strain of self-centeredness in us that leads us to not want to lift a finger for anybody else. Right? We may be tempted if we have employees to oppress the wage earner and his wages. The book of James mentions the same sin centuries later after Christ's ministry. James puts it in very strong words. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and you will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. Isn't it interesting that the blood of Abel cried out from the land to the Lord and yet the blood of those who didn't get paid by their, by their boss cries out to the Lord. Which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of want and pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. What does the Lord see in our hearts when it comes to wealth and the protection of orphans and widows? Is he pleased with how we use what he owns and has given to us? Is he pleased with the way we've done that? And then finally, all of the previous sins that we've worked through are summed up in that one phrase at the end of verse 5, and those who do not fear me, and those who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, says, the, says Yahweh of armies. Where the fear of the Lord is lacking, rebellion against the Creator flourishes. There's my use of that word that's so popular. Right? Where the fear of the Lord exists, godliness flourishes. Faith in Jesus Christ, salvation by faith alone, The very real fact that you contributed nothing to your salvation except the sin that would have condemned you, none of those things negates the necessity of the fear of the Lord in our walk with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus, our Savior himself, requires it. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him, God who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear him. Fear God. Fear God. Tremble before God and do not sin. 
right? Remember the gaze of the Lord before you click open your browser. He's watching you. Remember the gaze of the Lord as you walk on a college campus, right? Remember the gaze of the Lord as you fill out your taxes and want to cheat a tyrannical government. Remember the gaze of the Lord as you run a business and you want to break contracts and break promises, Remember the gaze of the Lord when you drive by the palm reader on 290 in Duncan. Right? Remember and fear. Tremble and do not sin. But remember this too. The gaze of the Lord on the righteous is such a comfort. Right? To Asa it was said, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. What a statement. I mean, what a wonderful and fearful thing. God desires to strongly support his children. He wants to strongly support them. He will be back. He will be behind them, right? Or he will actually be in front of them, fighting for them. But it's those whose hearts are completely his. I think, I mean, what does that mean? What does it mean to have hearts that are completely his? I I think we know what it means. Do we have to figure out a way that that means the opposite of what it says, right? So that no rigor is required in the Christian life. No working out of our salvation with fear and trembling. No pursuit of God is required. No, we probably shouldn't define it that way, right? Well, it doesn't mean doing work. Yes, it does. It means working. It means working. Not for your salvation. Come on, don't don't make me say that. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Luke 12, 34, right? Is God your treasure? Is God your treasure? God himself, God Almighty, the creator of the universe. Is he your treasure? Is your heart fully devoted to him? Is he and his holiness a delight to you? Do you even know what that means? Right? That God's holiness would be a delight. Do you even know what that means? Or are you still the old man delighting in darkness? It's only the regenerate Christian that knows how to delight in holiness, that knows the glory of God at all, in any way. Right? It is, I mean, God's holiness can be delightful, right? Can it be that there is a delightful devotion to God who can't be seen? Some never get beyond what their eyes see, right? They live for what they can taste, what they can touch, what they can handle, but the Christian lives for God and desires to have a heart that is not pulled between two things. They want God They want God exclusively. They want to live in a way where their father says, well done. Right? And the one who desires to please God will have a heart more fully devoted to him than that one who merely desires to add God to his materialistic worldview. An addendum. 
How can God Almighty, the creator of the universe, be an addendum to anybody's life? Wouldn't the God who created everything demand entire devotion? Not even demand it. Wouldn't it just cause us to be devoted to him? Well, sin works against that. Hearts fully devoted to God lead to a man trembling when he sins and delighting in the gift of Jesus Christ, weeping about the gift of Jesus Christ, the grace of God. We should always sing, give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. And dear brothers and sisters, that is most clearly seen and it's most clearly evidenced in a desire to be like the God you love. To be like him. Right? And he is holy, holy, holy. That's what God is. He's holy, holy, holy. Calvin put it this way. He said, let us take heed that while we look for the presence of God, we present ourselves before his tribunal with a pure and upright conscience. So when we go into the presence of God, let us go in a holy way, as, with a holy conscience. So dear brothers and sisters, these passages that we come across continually in Scripture, New and Old Testament, should lead you to examine yourself. Examine yourself, and when you are given eyes to see where you live in unbelief, repent and pursue God. That is a pursuit that is is worth any sacrifice. Remember that the people had accused God of being slow. Right? Verse 17 of chapter 2 in Malachi, where is the God of justice? And notice in verse 5 of chapter 3 that it says God would be a swift witness against those sins and sinners that we just went through. When Jesus came in fulfillment of these prophecies, many were not looking for Jesus, were they? Simeon was. Simeon was. The Pharisees and the Herodians were were making their alliances, and, and so the Messiah was out of sight and out of mind. You know, let's make alliances with Rome. Rome seems to be a much better path to take for power than than the Messiah, who doesn't seem to be coming. And when Jesus came, he rebuked the people for these sins, again, that are listed here. During Malachi's time, the people were calling for judgment, but God declares that they would be the ones that God came to judge. And the Jews rejected Jesus Christ. This is always God's prerogative. He's no respecter of persons. As we call out revoice and the sins of those who are corrupting the church, what kind of sinful actions are we unable to conquer? Right? What kind of hypocrites are we? Calvin, again, this is a longer quote from Calvin, but Calvin is so helpful. He says this, This reproof ought to be a warning to us in the present day that we may not call forth God's judgment on others while we flatter ourselves as being innocent. Whenever then we flee to God for help and ask him to render us aid, let us remember that he is a just judge who has no respect of persons. Let then everyone who implores God's judgment be his own judge and anticipate the correct 
the correction which he has reason to fear. That God, therefore, may not be armed for our destruction, let us carefully examine our own life and follow the rule prescribed here by the prophet. Let us be, um, bring with the worship of God. Then let us come to fornications and adulteries and whatever is contrary to a chaste conduct. And afterwards, let us pass to frauds and plunder. For if we are free from all superstition... If we keep ourselves chaste and pure, and if we also abstain from all plunders and cruelty, our life is doubtless approved by God. And everybody says, well, Calvin, you legalist. Is that really how we're approved by God to walk in holiness? And we just can't get past, we can't get past our antinomianism. We can't get past the modern cheap grace movement. We just can't get past the fact that the Christian life is to be one of rigor and growth in holiness and the fear of God. And that we just, we, we just think that's a contradiction to salvation by grace through faith alone. It's not. It is not. The fear of the Lord is established by salvation, by grace, through faith alone. Right? And the, and the third use of the law, the third use of the law, which is so hated today, the third use of the law, which is to be for Christians a rule of life, is everywhere in Scripture. We are to live and pursue holiness You who lament that lack of fear in the church today, do you fear God yourself? I mean, we can all say, yeah, the fear of God is missing in the church, and da-da-da-da, and then then we're just so brash in the way we sin against him. Do we have fear? I, I know this is not what you want to hear today. You want me to be positive. You want me to never mention sin. I know that. You want me to talk about how wonderful God is and how he is into human flourishing and how the Christian faith is not one of rigor and not one of self-examination. It's just one of the the amazing forgiveness. And and that God is not a God of justice, but he's, he's just one of forgiveness. But I won't. The passage in God's word has taken us here and all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, right, for for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And we have need to be reminded that we have work to do, that we have a God who is forgiving and just, Take one attribute of God and make it override all the others and you've committed blasphemy. You've committed idolatry. God is both forgiving, long-suffering, and just and wrathful and angry. And that he is not a respecter of persons and that means he is to be feared. Go read virtually any sermon preached before the 19th century. Jonathan Edwards was happy to talk about God's justice without destroying it by an overriding graciousness. Today, we can't wrap our heads around one being being both gracious and angry against sin, being a forgiver and a punisher. 
We just, we, we can't even figure out how to incorporate that into our parenting, let alone conceive of a God who could be both of those things. In our love fest for love fest, we have forbidden the fear of God. We have removed all rigor in the Christian life. We no longer talk about, notice this, we no longer in the church today talk about the pursuit of holiness. 20 years ago, when I first became a Christian, that's what we talked about, pursuing holiness. It doesn't get any mention today. I think that's fascinating. I think that's sad. Have you noticed that? Right? That used to be the bread and butter of the Christian life. How can I glorify God? Now we talk about how God is a servant of man and God causes human flourishing. But as the next verse says, for I, the Lord, do not change. I, the Lord, do not change. Seems that he has changed, doesn't it? In the imagination of our preachers, he certainly seems to have become a God who is a respecter of persons. Who exists to add meaning to a life determined by inborn affections and attractions. right? Who, who must meet our standards of fairness and righteousness. There is no fear of God. And when God withdraws from a people, that is exactly what we should expect. No fear of God. Brothers and sisters, we need to fear God. Let us fear God. May the Holy Spirit cause us to fear God. Let us do so as people who have been brought near to God through his gracious covenant. Right? Let us do that. That, in fact, is what the verse goes on to say, because God does not change, the sons of Jacob are not consumed. Right? Now, remember, they, they, they had been accusing God. And he essentially says here, it's because I don't change and have made covenant promises that I have not destroyed you up to this point. For your questions for your cynicism, for your talking back to me. Who do you think you are? For your ingratitude. That's not exactly the God of the 21st century American church, is it? And finally, in verse 7, this is stated, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Amazing, is that not? What a gracious call. Return to me and I will return to you. Follow my laws, which were given for your good and for your delight, and I will draw near. Devote your hearts fully to me and I will be near to you in my love. But you say, the verse goes on, how shall we return? I mean, that's like, did they seriously deign to speak after that was said? How shall we return? How shall we return? Another of their questions, their hearts are still not humble. They're still the child who, you know, in the face of discipline for an obvious action, declares his innocence. They are the child who knows how he must make something right, but feigns ignorance, you know. I don't know how to apologize to my sister as the bruise forms on her forehead. How shall we return? 
Perhaps this is the way to return. Perhaps by repenting for the sins that were just listed. But God in his graciousness will actually answer their question, which we'll take up next time, Lord willing. For now, what, what should we take away from this passage? It's this, fear God, pursue holiness, repent of your hypocrisy, accept correction from the hand of the Lord. We're all sinners needing sanctification Begin to believe that a life of holiness is true joy because a life of holiness is a life lived in the presence of God. Fight the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. Rejoice in holiness no matter how weird and countercultural it makes you. Don't be a brash woman. Don't be an effeminate man. Rather than Zom's Royale, maybe find Going for a walk in the woods and praying to God would be something wonderful and satisfying. I mean, pursue God. Pursue God. He is wonderful. He is powerful. He is eternal. He is there. He has never changed. Pursue him, and, and you may find that he is more delightful than video games. I'll end where Solomon ended his deathbed confession. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, everything which is hidden whether it is good or evil. Judged by our works, saved by grace, judged by our works. So let us work to taste and see that God is good.